every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I'm the County Clerk in Boone County, Missouri, and with me is my co-host. Eric Fade, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And today we're really excited to have Gabriela Casares Kelly. And she is, oh shoot, I just forgot what county you're in. You're the recorder for Pima County, Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to be talking about all kinds of things. But the, the first thing we always ask is how you ended up working in elections. Um, well, I always introduce myself in the traditional way. Um, so first of all, um, so good day. My name is Gabriela Castres Kelly. I'm from the communities of Bismao and Kuk which are located here in beautiful Pima County. Um, and that's how I ended up getting interested in this office, actually. Um, I used to work at Thana Otham Community College. It is a small community college on the Thana Otham Reservation. The Thana Otham Reservation, most people have no idea exists about the size of Connecticut. Our reservation is the size of Connecticut in Southern Arizona, and most people have no idea we're there. And it's a really rural area with tribal members. And I was asked to host a voter registration table at the community college where I worked. It was really small. We had about 300 students at the time. And I thought, oh, great. You know, we'll have a voter registration table in the student lounge, you know, for, you know, two afternoons. And that voter registration table ended up staying up for almost a month. We we're running into so many issues and so many questions from students that rather than take it all down, we just kept it up and I moved it right in front of my office door um, and people had to scoot around it just to come and talk with me. Um, but I was registering not just tribal members, but out of state students. And, you know, we were, we were running into so many problems and questions. And so I started Googling the Pima County Recorder's Office. I combed through the entire website looking for, I mean, surely this is such a common issue with tribal members. Like surely there's gotta be, you know, a reference in there somewhere about some of these questions. And there wasn't. And, you know, the same thing with college students. You know, we were seeing so many college students who were struggling, especially I would have maybe a student whose family lived in California, they grew up in California, but when their parents became empty nesters, they moved to New Mexico. And then, you know, the kid comes to Arizona. And so they're trying to talk about, you know, what ID do I use or how do I, how do I get registered? Where's my, what address do I use? <laughs> how do I get this ballot? And so there wasn't any resources for students either on the website and so I started making phone calls and then I kept calling <laughs> calling um, and then when I felt like everybody on our campus had finally gotten registered then I started hearing people from my community saying well how can my sister get registered she's not a student here but she definitely has some questions 
So then we realized that this was a huge systemic problem within the community. And it prompted me to start doing voter outreach throughout my entire community of the Thonawatha Nation, the size of Connecticut, without the road structure, without the inner infrastructure. This is really just me going out into rural communities on dirt roads and registering folks. And that's how I got interested in this office. Do you feel like those issues are unique to Arizona state structure of registration or I mean I think there's a broader issue obviously of making sure that our field the election like local election field is improving and getting better at outreach and making sure that we're serving the entire community but do you think that some of the things were roadblocks because of Arizona specific things or just because of the structure of the nature of voter registration no well so that was one of the things that um, I started discovering as I as I started doing all of this research, I would have a student from maybe Texas who would want to register to vote. And I'm like, okay, well, let's see how we can do it online. And we would find out, you know, sometimes I would sit with the student, maybe we would find information online, but a lot of times we would have to call whatever clerk's office or recorder's office that was in their county. Um, and sometimes we would have to get a form, you know, sent to us, and then we'd have to fax it back, or we'd have to postal mail it back before they could um, put in an absentee ballot request, or, you know, we were having to jump through all of these hoops all over the place. And so it wasn't just Arizona, I was getting a taste of what other people throughout the country were doing. Um, and so that was part of it. Part of it was really recognizing that we're not only talking about just this small region in rural Arizona, but Arizona as a whole, and then the country as a whole. You know, we have a lot of barriers that exist that I don't think are unique anywhere. And especially as I start to interact more with elections officials throughout the country, um, I think we're all kind of seeing the same types of systemic barriers that are keeping people from simply participating. I know I've read some stories across the country. I think in recent years in North Dakota, there was a lot of uh, struggle around uh, registering folks on Native American reservations and with ID rules and things like that. I'm, I think there was probably litigation over it. it. It sounds not too dissimilar from the struggles that you encountered uh, in your community. Can you talk a little bit about what, if anything, you've been able to address in your time now as recorder and what are still the challenges, not only in your community, but that you see across the country in this regard? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a little more complicated because um, when we're talking about like things like the ID requirements, that's not something that I have control over, as you know, that's statewide legislation um, that is, is driving that requirement. And so in Arizona, we had just a ridiculous uh, legislative session. We had 125 elections related bills uh, dropped in the Arizona state legislature, the majority of which were anti-voter bills. And normally it's usually around 50. So uh, more, than, more than double. 
the only thing that I have been able to have control over um, in regards to Native American outreach is literally having Native American outreach to begin with. Um, I actually have a Thano Otham outreach coordinator um, within my office, uh, somebody who has that sole responsibility is to outreach to the Thanatham community. And we're also looking for a Paspoyaki outreach coordinator. So those are the two tribes that are in our community. The Paspoyaki tribe, um, my predecessor decided to close an early voting site on the Paspoyaki reservation about two years ago, going on three years ago, without consulting the tribe and I mean, really without informing anybody, they just decided to close it. And, you know, for elections nerds who are very familiar with Shelby versus Holder, the decision that wiped away federal preclearance requirements, it's important to know that had that preclearance requirement been there, my predecessor would not have been able to do what she did. So she just decided Nah, we're not going to serve this community anymore and pulled the, <laughs> pulled the resource. Um, and she did that because she did not have to go through any type of formal decision uh, making preclearance. And so um, the early voting site was closed and the tribe tried to get it, you know, they tried to request it to be reopened over and over. Um, they started getting formal support from the Board of Supervisors, from the City of Tucson Mayor, from even from the Secretary of State's office, and they had full support. It was very clear, like, this is needed. This community does not have, you know, the resources that most urban areas have. You know, the, the bus system is very sparse. <laughs> they are struggling with language barriers. There's, there's all sorts of reasons why it's very clear that this early voting site in this particular community was needed, the majority of which being distance to the next closest early voting site. And the previous recorder continued to refuse it. And so they basically ran out the clock. The tribe tried to sue, um, but because of the delays, it was not able to actually physically happen. And so that's one of the things that within my short term so far, um, I was actually able to settle with the tribe just recently. And we have put it in paper, which I, a lot of people felt like I didn't need to do that. But I think it sets a really amazing precedent for the next person who could be recorder that that this is important for this very reason, for this historical context. And so in Arizona, I often share, and I try to personalize this a little bit, uh, we're always talking about like women's suffrage, 1920, right? 2020 is a big year for women's suffrage. Well, my grandmother, her name was Catherine Jose Maria. Uh, she was born in 1918. And you know, this is my grandma who used to like buy me ice cream and put band-aids on my knees when I, when I scuffed them. But she was born in 1918. And because she was born Thon Otham, she was actually not considered a United States citizen. Um, and she wouldn't be a United States citizen until 1924. 
but she would have still been considered a ward of the state. <laughs> there was this guardianship laws. And so it wasn't until two World War II veterans came back from the war and they tried to register um, in Maricopa County and were denied by the county recorder, which they sued. They sued the state of Arizona and we won the right to vote in 1948. And of course, it didn't mean that there wasn't still literacy tests or open discrimination um, or intimidation uh, factors. Um, so my grandmother wouldn't have had the right to vote until she was 30. I'm 39. That's that's wild to me. It's, it's very wild. But she wouldn't have had those protections until Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement paved the way for the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But my grandma didn't speak English um, and she didn't have rights to a translator or interpreter until you know the mid 1970s, and so, which wasn't that long ago here in Arizona. And so, you know, when we're talking about people and their starting lines, we're not all starting from the same starting line. And so when we think about the Pascoyaki community, we're asking a group of Native American people who have been discriminated against by the United States government, who've literally been tried to be killed off by the United States government to then participate in the United States government election process. Like, I'm sorry, you do have to do relationship building there. You have to, you have to be out there in the community and helping people understand because that trauma uh, that has been occurring is so recent. I'm talking about my grandmother. <laughs> it's not that long ago. Um, and so to have all of that documented and what the struggle is and, and understanding the realities, um, I think is really important. It's been really important because a lot of people will say to me things like, I've never met a Native American before. I've never met a tribal member. Is it offensive to use the word reservation? Is it offensive to use the word tribe? That like they really don't have enough understanding of our communities and who we are as people and some of the challenges that we're, that we're facing. And they're literally talking about us in a past tense uh, framework. And so for me to be, you know, the first Native American to hold um, an elected countywide seat here in my county, I'm the third or fourth Native American to hold a countywide position within the entire state. So there's not that many of us in the spotlight. And so some of these issues like you're talking about with like identification um, needs, like people are, you know, they roll their eyes at them. They, they don't quite understand how big of a deal that is in a community where, you know, one in four families does not have a vehicle and there's no public transportation. And when you're talking about a tribal ID card that you can go to, you know, you can go into the central community, which is, we call it cells. It's kind of like the hub of everything, which is where all of, you know, the Indian health services are there and the gross, the one grocery store is there. Um, so people tend to congregate there um, a lot more. And there you can get a photo ID through the tribe that you can use in a bank. 
before they're changing some of these recent laws, we also used to be able to fly with them, you know, without needing a driver's license. <sighs> the closest motor vehicle division to some of these locations is like two and a half hours, three hours away. So we don't have a motor vehicle division within our own community to be able to, to have the, the state ID requirement. And so it's just, it's really frustrating. Um, but being able to be in those spaces and talk about these and explain to people, I was at uh, the Secretary of State's office recently um, in Arizona. We recently had a tribal summit <laughs> and um, I got word that they wanted to cancel it at one point. And so here I am as an elected official and a tribal member and I'm, when I uh, had the Secretary of State come to my office, I said, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to me and my staff are coming. Um, so we're so glad, we're so grateful that you're throwing this. And they made sure to have it. And then I was a keynote speaker and I sat on a panel and I explained to people, you know, what a physical address means because most people have no idea what non-standard addresses look like or sound like. And people had never considered it before. And so, you know, usually when you say non-standard addresses, I don't even know what people think of, but my childhood address is turn south on Highway 86, drive down Indian Route 21, turn right at the red fence, turn left on the, um, at the Y, by the big tree. My cousin's address is the house next door. That's literally the only directions that I can give to my household address. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I live now in Tucson. I live um, you know, on a street in a cul-de-sac, uh, but my cousin very much <laughs> lives right next door to where I grew up. And uh, people don't understand when we talk about voter registration forms and how you can, yeah, you can register online, but how do you capture that voter registration request? She has a PO box. She has a, um, an HCO1 box actually, but how can she put that information in an online system that doesn't understand non-standard addresses? And then when you look at that form and the form requires a map, um, I once went door to door talking to people and all I was asking is, do you need help filling out your voter registration form? At one house, I had an, uh, um, I would call her a hoardy, an old little grandma. She was so cute. She was hanging her laundry outside and she goes, yes, yes, let me get it. And she runs inside the house. She comes back out. She has the entire thing filled out. She says, she points to the area on the bottom It says map. And she goes, I just didn't know how to draw the map. This is the day before the voter registration deadline. And I said, you actually don't need to. And she goes, no, 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 it says right here. And what that is, is for people who are houseless, who might be living behind the, you know, the grocery store in the wash. And then you draw the little map area to indicate, you know, your closest area in an urban area. But for a place the size of Connecticut, how do you draw that? How do you draw the Thonotham Reservation? She was from a community, I think, called Serdanakia in the Chukutkuk district. 
how does she put that on paper? And <laughs> so she had a lot of questions and she was really confused because those instructions didn't apply to her and didn't apply to many people within that community. So yeah, it's an ongoing thing, trying to highlight this to people who don't, who only think in the standard, which we don't fit in. How have you shifted or, or have you at all in talking from advocacy to now implementation, kind of bringing these things up to other election officials that are making these decisions so that they don't make those same mistakes um, intentionally or otherwise? Wow, this is a this is a really big one. It's it, totally it's like, hey, you're not doing enough. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, and then um, I mean that's part of it too, is like right? it, have those conversations been happening? Cause I mean, we have on a on a very different and but still kind of similar scale, these things come up about the accessibility community and you know, in in a lot of ways, the communities that if you don't see them every day, maybe you don't think that they exist. And so you don't try to make any kind of inroads into meeting people where they are. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, and that's, there are disabled people within the native community. We get hit double. <laughs> uh, so it, one of the things that I have started um, really locally trying to build support for is automatic voter registration and same day voter registration. But in Arizona, you know, that that is something that I don't know that the other recorders have seen that as a as a pressing issue. And I see it, especially now when we're talking about communities that we don't see very often and we're talking about disparities. Um, we're absolutely talking about the need to have you know, automatic voter registration or same day voter registration, I connect it with property ownership. Like we, especially, you know, having been part of that group that was primarily excluded. <laughs> um, if you're not a rich white landowning man, <laughs> you were not included in the original group of people who could participate in our democracy. And so we say that we've moved away from that, but when we have residency requirements and we don't have things like voter the same day voter registration or automatic voter registration you know it's really clear there that works continuing to put an emphasis on land ownership these property owners who are the ones who are you know they're going to get their ballot they're going <laughs> they're not going to run into issues but you know people who are being displaced couch surfers people who are being evicted those are the people who are really gonna gonna struggle, and so um, I've been starting to work on <laughs> building support for that concept, um, so that you know maybe that's something that the recorders association puts forward in the next legislative cycle, not this next coming one because we're expecting that one to be just kind of ridiculous, but you know within within my term, absolutely. But I, I'm starting to try to connect it as as an urgency as not simply a matter of convenience, but a way to include more people. The other thing I have been very vocal about supporting federal legislation, um, 
the For the People Act, of course, or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. The John, if we had the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, it's literally about pre-clearance requirements. And we would have that protection that even though I was able to make the decision to re reinstate this early voting site, I should not have, it should not have had to be up to me. If there was a white supremacist in the same position who simply decided, nah, you know what, these greedy natives, they have enough, that that could be something that somebody makes that decision. And what, you know, I'm being vulgar <laughs> by talking about this like concept of greedy Indians, but that is absolutely the vibe that I got from people as I was talking about that they were like, oh, well, they should be grateful that you're reinstating. You, you don't have to give them too much. Like that was the language that people were using, talking about me reinstating something I willingly wanted to do that was the right thing to do. But we need to have those protections. And so I have been calling for federal protections. And I think that it's very clear that we need them. The For the People Act has uh, language in there specifically for Native American communities. Um, and there's just recently um, a Native American Voting Rights Act bill that was introduced. I, I like to call her my cousin, my cousin Cherise Davids. <laughs> uh, she co-sponsored a bill that's specifically addressing some of these very real needs. We have to acknowledge that the system that we are now a part of, like we're very much the man now, uh, but the system is rooted in white supremacy. It was meant to exclude as many people as possible from this. In Arizona, we're always talking about the, well, it used to be the five C's, you know, cotton, climate, citrus, copper, cattle, but it's also corrections. Um, we've literally made an industry of uh, making Arizona a part of the prison industrial complex and targeting black and brown people and disenfranchising large numbers of black and brown people. And we never give that like a second thought. We never, we're like, oh, of course people with felonies, um, you know, shouldn't participate in our system. Like, oh, of course. Um, but then when you think about it, other countries have voting in prisons. And <laughs> the reason that we don't is because we linked it to slavery and emancipation of enslaved people. And we have policies and laws that we have just accepted as norm that are rooted in, you know, freed people trying, you know, trying to disenfranchise that specific group of people. And we standardized it and we made it everywhere throughout the country. And so that is a norm. And when, so when we talk about like, about changing policies and we think about those changes that need to happen, we need to understand like why why do we feel that that's okay? Why do we feel that it's okay to continue to disenfranchise people um, who are targeted by the police and the prison complex who receive harsher, longer punishment and are much more likely to receive a felony than others? You know, we have this representation 
in the prison system, but we don't have it in leadership. And there's a reason why. And so if we're not questioning the policies themselves, we're doing a disservice to our communities. So we have to continue to question those policies that exist that are keeping people from participating or it's never gonna be reflective. Not to get down in the minutia too much, but I know it's a big topic in election administration, GIS and geolocating addresses and things like that. I wonder this challenge you talk about with, with voter registration and non-standard addresses, it's very prevalent uh, in the Native American community, obviously, but it's also prevalent uh, in other parts of the country. I know here in Missouri, we have a number of counties that have non-standard addressing, but we don't have at least a statewide um, GIS-enabled voter registration database. I'm wondering if you and uh, maybe the state of Arizona have looked into that, or if you're moving in that direction, you know, maybe that's part of the solution. I don't know. Well, we have the capability right now of being able to put that within our database system, which is fine on an individual basis. But when we're talking about movements like that, we're talking about areas, you know, the size of Connecticut, what we're really talking about is number one, there needs to be consultation with the tribes, which uh, people don't understand tribal sovereignty, like we're separate entities. And also at the same time, we're a part of the United States. And so it's very complicated. And there's usually not sweeping legislation that impacts us all uniformly. Um, and not all tribes need that. Um, so there are very much tribes in urban areas that absolutely don't need, you know, geolocations or any of that kind of things, like the numbering or anything. But in the places where they are doing that, which I think is really cool, like the Utah Project has, is, you know, doing that so that they're labeling homes within Southern Utah, I think. Um, but what they do is they they get the actual geocode um, number and they have it printed on a couple of you know signs so that it can be attached to the house that can be attached to you know a couple places and then they have people going out there um, and educating the community about what this number is and what it does and, and how to utilize it and it's like a whole educational campaign because you have people coming out into these rural areas and you know talking to people like in order for something like that to happen that requires a huge amount of resources. Like who is going to pay for the signs? Who is going to pay for the gas to get out there? The personnel to go out there and educate, um, you know, what types of materials are they giving people? And then what is the work that's done before? Before you have maybe non-natives coming to a native community, trying to attach a number to your house. What kind of relationship building have you done within the community it says hey there's not there's a trespasser there's somebody who does not look like they're from our community in our community there's so much additional work that has to be done for a wide-scale project like that and so you know for me as recorder you know it's something that I'm aware of and I'm very like I'm very interested I think it would be helpful I think you know when there's an emergency in the house like you know, to have the, a fire, fire truck come to your community or something like that. Um, what people do as a standard is they go and stand out on the road. You have people standing out on the road and then you have people 
in like kind of touch points so that you can like wave the fire truck down and say like, this is where you turn because those, those services don't exist in, in the middle of, a, of an emergency, that's what people do. You know, I can definitely see the benefit of it, but it's not something that I'm planning on championing out of, out of my office. That isn't something that I have the capacity to do. And I definitely think it's something on the statewide level. And in Arizona, there's, there's 22 distinct tribal nations and they don't all have the same needs. And so, like I said, some of them are in very much urban areas and like that, that's not a concern at all for those community members. Um, and then there's communities like the one I'm from where, I mean, I really, my father, I was thinking about this the other day, the community where I'm from, they, they were so excited by my win that they, put up a billboard that said, you know, Pissinamo District, Pissinamo District, this in English, the Pissinamo District congratulates Gabriela Casadas Kelly on her win Pima County Recorder. And there's a big picture of me. And my father-in-law, I've known this man 22 years. He's never been to the community where I'm from, um, but he was on a trip that required him to drive past the road, the main road, the turnoff. And he saw, he saw, the billboard and he he took a picture of it and he texted it to me and I said 10 minutes south is where I grew up Mike you know like this is this is where I'm from and I but I wouldn't have been able to like direct him to that house or anything like if he wanted to go like oh let me go check it out I wouldn't have been able to do that <laughs> without explaining the red fence <laughs> which I hope it's still red like I hope you know somebody didn't paint it blue or something but I can't give directions to, to that house. As a new local election authority and knowing all of the work that needs to be done, how do you prioritize for yourself what is important for you to do personally in elections administration? And um, I don't wanna say what do you hope to accomplish in your term because you know that's a very broad question. But like specifically, when you're looking at your calendar for the day or you're trying to figure out where do I put my energy and resources, how do you prioritize that? Oh, wow. Uh, that, is, that is the challenge, right? My role has been extremely different from my predecessors. Um, my predecessor was very much involved in the every single day-to-day -day thing that was happening within the office. Um, and mine has been about half of that and about half community engagement and um, you know how am I showing up and and honestly because of the 125 pieces of legislation in the Arizona State Legislature um, a lot of my job has had to be reacting to that and settling the minds and the hearts of community and explaining what's happening and how it's impacting our office and so it, I don't know, I don't know what that situation has been, but recorders throughout the state are saying, you know, this is different from anything that we've ever been accustomed to. And this is, this is my new, this is what I'm coming into. And so what I'm trying to do um, within my office is to standardize and document everything, which is, if there's, it's amazing how much is run from memory or 
<laughs> that is really kind of shocking, like shocking, shocking. And, and capture the institutional knowledge that is there. It exists, but it isn't, it isn't sustainable. And I think that that is a really big thing. So we're spending a lot of time trying to document processes. Right now, we're actually moving towards e-poll books. Actually, as soon as I get off of this podcast, I'm going to be going to a training to take a look at our, e- our new e-poll book technology. We're going to be launching a pilot at ballot replacement sites. So we're going to be using the technology to test it out. And you know that's something that start to finish <laughs> right here, right now. That's something that I've prioritized during my nine months so far that I've served in office. And for me, my priorities are trying to move along the standardization of my office, consistency, transparency, and really changing the narrative and recognize that we're serving constituents and the public and we're sharing records and we're, we work for the people um, and really changing the attitude of my, of my staff, not in a negative way. Like there, I have a really wonderful staff. Like they're amazing. Uh, <laughs> I, I could not do what I'm doing um, right now if it weren't for the staff who has this tremendous amount of institutional knowledge and expertise, but really trying to capture these best practices um, on paper and document it all just to have uniformity. That, that is something that I've been really pushing. And then also the outreach, responding to requests for interviews, for, you know, to, to be on the news and to, to give this information, you know, that's, it's really strange because I used to view all of those things as like, oh, those are attention seeking things. Those are, those are bad things. You know, you're really taught, um, especially within my culture, not to be doing those types of things. But really when we think about it as a whole, this is us informing our community and that is part of the, the communication and the transparency. So it's not only a good thing or a positive thing, like, no, that's our duty. That's our duty as people who serve the public to be out with the public and talk to the public um, in whatever format that is. And so I'm trying to learn how to balance. <laughs> I, I can see these smiles. It's so funny as I say this uh, smile on your face because I know that you're just probably struggling with the same things, you know, like making sure that you're giving time to the office and at the same time giving time to the community and at the same time remembering that you're still a human being and you need to take a break. <laughs> and so one of the things that I'm learning is that other elected officials maybe spend less time in the office than I do, <laughs> which is wild to me. But, you know, I'm really trying to think about long-term, like think about sustainability, thinking about self-care, thinking about all of those types of things. Um, so when I take a look at my calendar um, every single day, I'm making sure that what we're doing for the day is connected with our vision and our mission of the office, which is to to be more transparent and available to the community and ensure the trust of, of community. And so, <laughs> you know, if we're not doing that 
like why is it even on my calendar how did this make this here <laughs> you know that's why it's been really exciting to see this like progressive growth of young people especially um who are wanting to make these change you know make these changes and who are thinking about things uh that you know like we're talking like about accessibility and we're talking about you know Native American communities. We're talking about all these communities that have been left behind, um, but really are understanding that, you know, when we address the needs of the most marginalized, that we help everybody. And so the more that we're thinking about these things and talking about these things and, and connecting with other people and realizing, wait, this is, you know, we're on the lowest level and uh, these people are making decisions, you know, that's literally what happened me um, registering voters and then recognizing, wait, this is a systemic problem that can be addressed here. You know, um, our wish list becomes the minimum of what we aspire to work toward or that we, that we achieve. Okay, folks, that was high turnout, wide margins. Big thanks to Gabriella Casares Kelly for being our guest. It was a great conversation. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you tune in next time to High Turnout Wide Margins.